diversity is having a diverse range of voices, faces, everything else. Inclusion is letting those people have a seat at the table. Looking back on my career, I felt like a lot of them were detours along the way. And not to say that I knew, at that point, I didn't have like a 15, 20 year plan. I never at that point said, I want to be an editor in chief one day. To be able to start with that statement and to say, beauty can actually change the world. It sounds sort of like a ridiculous statement, I think, to some people, but I really do believe that changing our perception of how we feel about ourselves, but also how we feel about other people, is super meaningful. Welcome back to Vanessa Wants to Know, where I, Vanessa Hong, get to have conversations that move you. Every other Tuesday, I sit down with a paradigm-shifting guest from the world of fashion, business, food, and beyond, who's moving the dial in a really big way. On today's episode, I sit down with Michelle Lee, editor-in-chief of Allure magazine. This is doubly exciting for me because one, Allure magazines were all over my house growing up because my mom loved reading them. And two, because Michelle is one of a very few women of color, specifically she's Chinese-American, who's at the helm of a major American women's magazine. Anna Wintour, who supposedly handpicked Michelle for the role, must have had the foresight to know that Michelle was going to really shake things up. In as little as four years, Michelle has completely changed what we have come to have known as Allure magazine, and an even broader scope, how we define beauty today in 2019. From creating beautiful covers, celebrating different women of color, to banishing the word anti-aging forever from the magazine. Michelle has recognized that beauty is a vehicle for change and revolution. Themes throughout our very rich conversation include Michelle's early life and how that shaped her as a woman and now her role as editor-in-chief, the distinction between diversity and inclusivity, and ultimately, Michelle's vision for the future, not only at the magazine, but the planet. A world essentially where diversity and inclusion are not just buzzwords, but common practice. Michelle, for me, is the future. So get ready for a highly intelligent, thoughtful, and introspective conversation with one of the most inspiring women in the game, Michelle Lee. So thank you so much, Michelle, for making the time to do this. You are a busy woman. (laughs) You were actually one of the first people that I I told like this podcast to. I remember being so excited for you. Yeah. Like this season is dedicated to Asian excellence. I think something that is oddly like super trendy right now, yeah. you know, like it's, it's such a strange kind of moment an amazing moment to like be in the U S and, and have our, our faces and likeness be represented. Yeah. It still blows my mind. Cause I feel like every week there's a new TV project or movie project or something that's been greenlit with an Asian star. Right. And I'm like, I think we all had this fear after crazy rich Asians that right. it was just going to be this flash in the pan that Hollywood yeah. was excited and that it would somehow go away. But I'm so happy and just excited the fact that it's continuing. About the crazy rich Asians, I always tell people like I was actually probably one of the last Asians to watch it because, you know, like you grow up and you see all these movies 
that are Asian centric or there's like an Asian in the movie or television show. And it's, it was always done in such like a cliche way. I was really genuinely like afraid to watch it because I was like, you know, what am I walking into? But it turned out to be like the most amazing celebratory movie in the world. So I love that. I know. I was definitely nervous going into it because I was like, it just meant so much for all of us. That it's like, if it was bad and didn't represent us well, it could have done the exact opposite effect. But I was really happy because I think the first time that I went to go see it, I went with my husband and my two kids. Right. And I knew that I was going to love it and I knew that my daughter would love it. But the fact that my husband and my son, who's a teenager, loved it too, just as a pure piece of entertainment, I think was such a positive thing. Yeah, it just like stood on its own. And I think, you know, for both of us, when we were growing up, for sure, there was nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing like that. Do you that. remember even like one per- I can I can remember maybe three people who I saw on TV who were Asian. One was Martin Yan who did Yan Can Cook. Oh yeah. Right? Do you remember? Wasn't he on like PBS or uh, I felt like he was on like on some sort of like public I think it was. Like it wasn't on a cooking network. Yeah. You might be too young for Tia Carrere. Do you remember her from Wayne's World? Wait. Yes. Yes. She was the other one and then Connie Chung. Right, Connie. Connie Chung on the news. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I was at an event about a year and a half ago, and she was being honored there. Oh. And she knew who I was. Wow. And she came up to me, because we sat at a table next to her. She came up to me, and she put her hands on my shoulder and said, I am so proud of you. Oh, my and gosh. And I seriously just wanted to cry. I probably would have started bawling. That's <laughs> oh, insane. actually, it was at Apex Gala, which oh, I think you've been to before. Yes, I love Apex. That's like such a great foundation. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's go back to the very beginning. You grew up in Connecticut, right? I did. So I grew up in a little town called Monroe, Connecticut. So I was actually, actually born in Warwick, New York. And then at some point, my parents moved to Connecticut. So we were actually the only Asian family in town in Connecticut. Wow. Wait, where did you How? grow up like that too? No, I grew up in Vancouver. Oh, okay. So, so very Asian then. Like Vancouver, for the Canadians out there or the CBCs out there, we called it Hongcouver <laughs> because there were so many Hong Kongese and Asians in there. So, you know, oddly enough, there were Asians like growing up for me, but where I went to school, the neighborhood, everybody was white. Really? Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because I, I do definitely think of Vancouver as being very Asian. Yeah. But yeah, in Connecticut, we were the only Asian family in town. And sorry, how many people were in this town? No, no, I don't know. I'm was sure it like, like a big... It's a small town. It's a small town. It was like a very suburban Connecticut town. Right. And it was weird because I don't think that I necessarily realized until maybe middle school that I was different from everyone else. Oh, that long? Yeah, because I think as a kid, you just, you know, you're going about your business. You just right. feel like in the same way that someone has blonde hair or black hair mm-hmm. or whatever else, you mm-hmm. just feel like you're kind of different. So once I hit middle school, though, it was awful. And I think that then really? other kids let me know that I was different. Right. And so especially in seventh grade, I was bullied really badly. Oh. So it's funny. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about it. And like, I think at the time, I obviously hated it. But when I look back now, I feel like being bullied was actually such a great thing. Because I do think that in some weird ways, it helps to motivate you. And I think it gave me this really great perspective on what it's like to be bullied and like to make sure that I don't victimize people and like to make sure that I'm always standing up for people. Right. So it taught you like oddly in a roundabout way, empathy. Yeah. Very early on. Absolutely. But I think it also just taught me about the injustice in the world too, that I think from a young age, just sort of understanding that we're not equal. Yeah. You know, for me, First of all, Vancouver, Canada, I feel is like a very open country for the most part. But I, I did experience 
otherness very early on, you know, from like the food that I ate and people being like, you know, what are you eating when everybody else was eating, you know, very Western kind of types of food. So it's interesting that your experience was later. I know. It's really funny to think about too, because nowadays like Korean food, let's say, like I'm Chinese, but like Korean food has become so huge and it's so trendy that I do think that for my own kids, like we now live in a town that's about half Asian, like it's about half Korean. The way that they grow up, and not just because of that, but because, like, of culture and everything else, there's so much more education now about, like, global societies that I just don't think it's the same anymore. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely, like, an interesting time, you know, for children of color to be growing up in this country. Yeah. Although I then sometimes think that things have changed, but I also think that we're sort of spoiled sometimes living on the coasts. That then I think that if you go to other parts of the country, even, it's so not diverse, yeah, I had this um, conversation. One of my last conversations was with Jen Rubio from Away. And we were both kind of saying how, you know, although there have been changes, you know, like we do see more Asians in movies and gochujang and like sriracha are suddenly condiments in non-Asian households. I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think especially in this political climate, mm-hmm. I think that it's made all of us realize how in a very short time, the entire world could end up turning on us too. That it's like, not even the world, but the country could turn us. I think that a lot of times people think of Asian Americans as the model minority, but I definitely think that in like a super quick amount of time, it could all turn too. Right, right, right. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that they were putting, you know, Chinese and Japanese people in concentration camps. I mean, more or less in America. Yeah. It's crazy. Okay, so you grew up in Connecticut, you went to high school there, and you ended up you ended up moving at some point, yep. right? So my dad got a job in Florida when I was 16. So we ended up moving down to South Florida uh, in a little suburb of Fort Lauderdale uh, when I was 16. So I spent my last two years of high school down there, and it was major culture shock. Like when you think about super, super white bread, Connecticut, moving down to South Florida— As a teenager, you're like, this is the worst thing ever. I'm like, how can you do this to me? But it actually ended up being amazing because I saw so much diversity down there. It made me adapt to new people. So again, in hindsight, I think I can look back on it and be like, it was an amazing experience for me. Was there any of that like continued bullying when you went to? There really wasn't. And I think Mm. that it's kind of the weird thing now is that I think that people always think about, oh, in the Northeast, there's really not racism. Like I remember people saying that to me like, oh, we're not racist up here in the Northeast. But weirdly, I feel like in my own lifetime, I've experienced more racism in the Northeast than I have anywhere else in the country. Interesting. And what were you like in high school? Like, oh, what was I like? In I high think school? like not, I've not I've, cool. <laughs> I've heard you say that you were like really, really smart, like super bright. You got straight A's. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever got anything besides an A in all of my high school. Damn. Weirdly <laughs> though, so I think when I was in Connecticut, the school was great. Like we had a really good educational system. In Florida, all of the things that they say about Florida education are completely true, unfortunately. They don't spend enough money on teachers down there. They don't really put enough emphasis on it. So in a weird way, I think by me moving down there, it made me learn how to game the system a bit. So because I was a pretty bright kid, I learned how to do the least amount of work in order to pass. Right. So not to say that I got lazy in my last two years of high school, but I think I just learned how to work the system so that I could get by. I like to call that efficiency because <laughs> I was like that too. Really? Like in high school. I definitely had a B somewhere around there, but 
I just never really showed up for class because yeah. I just recognized that like when I was really bright and because I was bright, I understood like, oh, this is how the school system works here. Yeah. So, Which is not a bad thing. No, it's not bad at yeah. all. I mean, because I do think that in life even, it's not all about getting good grades. Like you have to understand the social system. You have to understand how certain things work. So in a way, it's like even with my own kids, I care about their grades, but I also care about everything else that goes around it because I've seen enough people who are successful or not successful who it's not all just about your academic skills. No, there's such a thing as called like emotional IQ, right? And I think that being empathic is like another great asset to, you know, getting really great SAT scores. Yeah. But yeah, in high school, I was super nerdy. So what do you mean not cool? I was not cool. So nowadays, like people are like, you are so lucky. You have the coolest job. You're so cool. And I'm like, I am so not cool. Like, I don't even think I'm cool now. I just think I'm like, at heart, I think I'm always just like a a geek and a nerd. (laughs) That's not like, that's not bad though. And I think that's the thing is that the times now... Everything has sort of shifted to where being a nerd is like cool. I mean, yeah, like look at the tech world, right? Like the heroes of the world are the people that start these like crazy billion dollar companies overnight. Yeah. And these were the kids that were bullied, you know, in high school. Totally. But like I was a pretty good kid. I think definitely in my later high school years, I never rebelled really, but I think I was just, I was a real jerk to my mom, especially. I think that sometimes when you're either having a hard time at school or you're having a hard time with friends or whatever, you tend to take it out on the people who you love and who you know are not going to abandon you. So my mom and I definitely in high school, I had a hard relationship with her. It wasn't until I went to college that I think I was like, what am I doing? Besides that though, like when I look back, I'm like, I was a good kid. I have a sister who's four years older and she also was a really good kid. So I don't know. It it gives me hope for my own kids, too, that once they're like that age, they'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, you got to allow kids just to be petulant and kind of like jerky. You know, you got to work through that. And I kind of had a moment, too, where I was, I don't know at what, I think when I turned 30 or somewhere around there, I just realized I'm like, you know, the sacrifices my mom like had to make just so my sister and I could get everything we wanted. I think as women, you know, it's almost like this crystallizing moment of when you go from being a girl to a woman. It's when you really understand why your mom acted the certain, like a certain way, why she said certain things. Yeah. Is your um, sister older or younger? She's one year younger. She's literally like 13 months younger than I am. Yeah. So we're super duper close, right? Yeah. I can't even believe when you just said, like, I never know how old people are when they're Asian because I'm like, you look so young. I know. My assistant and I were saying, we were like Googling you and we're like, wait, she's how old? I know. It's always like, it's just like Asian don't raise in. Completely. That's that's my favorite motto. Well, I think also looking at my parents too, like my mom especially, my mom is like, I think in her early 70s, but she looks so young. Right. And like, it is, I don't know, it's like an amazing Asian thing, but also I think taking care of yourself too. A hundred percent. What's your, what did your parents, are they retired now? So my dad is retired. My mom, most of the time when we were growing up was a stay-at-home mom. Which and is then, a job, people. Oh, it is it's, a full-time and a half a job. Full, like, like two full-time jobs. Yep. And then once I hit middle school um, and my sister was in high school, she went to go work at a bank. And then, so my mom is very, very reserved and like not the person you would be like, this woman's going to go into sales. She actually, when I got into high school, got a job in sales. 
And like, it was such this weird pivotal moment for me of where I thought, my God, my mom, who's like, you know, very, very shy and reserved going into sales, but like she pushed herself so hard to where she was successful at it. Like, I feel like that was such a pivotal moment for me just to see that with her, that she did something that I never thought that she was going to be able to accomplish. The fact that she did that, I feel like that more than a lot of other things in my own career gave me that motivation to be like, if you work really hard at something and you really care about it, like you can totally do it. Yeah, I kind of have a similar kind of story to that as well. Like, I mean, my mom, she worked her whole life and unfortunately she was not, she wasn't in the best marriage. And when she decided to leave my father, it just showed, because we we always thought that, you know, it would never happen. And when it did happen, it showed me, I was like, wow, you know, like my mom has such strength and grace And I really kind of took that with me, you know, moving forward that like, you can change your mind at any moment as a woman, and you should not be judged for your previous decisions at all. Yeah, I know. It's amazing because like, I think with a lot of kids, at least for me, I didn't necessarily view my parents as people when I was younger. Like you never do, right? You never do. It's just mom and dad. Yeah, exactly. And then when you get older and you realize, oh my God, they're people who have gone through Similar things that I've gone through, they've gone through struggles, they've gone through struggles with their siblings, their family, their aunts, their uncles, their grand, like their parents, whatever. It's like so mind-blowing to then think about. Mm-hmm. And now you're a parent too. Yep. And your kids just see you as mom. I know. I'm like, I hope that they don't at some point like be like, oh, like I don't want to spend any time with you. <laughs> but all kids are like that. Yeah. Come on. No matter like how cool your parents <laughs> are, it's like every child's going to experience that. So after high school... Where did you go? So after high school, I stayed in Florida to go to college. So I moved to Tampa and I went to the University of South Florida. And I think I was still just in that mindset of I wanted to do the least amount of work and get by. I was a very, very bored college student. So especially for my first two years, my first year, I think I tried a little bit harder and I took classes that I really, in hindsight now, definitely wish I didn't take. I took like chemistry and Latin and stuff. Oh my gosh. Which had no bearing on my life. You're like speaking to the pre-med person (laughs) here. (laughs) That's true. That's true. So by my second year, before I started junior year, I needed to pick a major, had no clue what I wanted to do. I think that all along, like in elementary school, middle school, when people would say to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? My canned answer was a baker. A baker? A baker, which sounds so random, but it was that I love food because I'm Asian, right? right? And we all love food. I had no idea what that meant. Did but you it was bake? More, like when, I baked, but I wasn't like an avid baker Right. Or you anything. weren't like making sourdough and no, stuff. No, <laughs> not at all. I probably just like cupcakes or something. Wait, this is so random. It's so random. Is there even college for bakers? I guess if you went to like pastry school. Oh, yeah, right. right? Okay, yeah. but that's like... Very like by the, time, by the time I got into high school thing, I, I think I had like abandoned the baker thing. I don't even know what I would say to people. I probably just said, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I clearly had no clue what I wanted to do by the time I was a sophomore in college. So I had to choose a major and I liked the journalism building. So I was like, well, maybe I'll go into journalism and try that out. And after I chose that and went into some of the classes, it all made sense to me. It was definitely not like a random thing. Then when I thought back about my whole life, I was like, oh, this totally makes sense. When I was in fifth grade, I started a magazine. I like would write books. I read a ton of books. Like I just loved writing stories. In middle school, I got really into writing science fiction and reading science fiction. So the the journalism thing and writing and English and everything made a lot of sense to me. I still was a very bored college student though. 
So I could not wait to get out of Florida. I think that was the other positive thing probably about me moving down there was that it motivated me because I wanted to move to New York. So by my junior year, I started working. So I scheduled all of my journalism classes to be at night and I worked full time during the day. And so by the time I was like later in my junior year and then all throughout senior year, I had a full-time job. So I was a staff writer at a weekly newspaper during the day and then taking classes at night. It sounds insane now because it's sort of like you're basically working 24-7, but it ended up being a great training ground and it helped me then move to New York. That's wild. And when did um, the internship at Glamour come in? So the internship at Glamour, I got my senior year of college. And so I only got that it was through this internship called the American Society of Magazine Editors. And one of my professors in journalism had said, I wrote this great cover story for the newspaper. He was like, I saw that you should submit this. So I actually knew nothing about this internship. At that point, I wasn't even thinking about, I'm going to move to New York and work for Glamour. So the fact that he submitted me for that and then I got it, it just meant so much to me. Like I still keep in touch with those professors just because it was such like a pivotal moment in my life of where somebody believed in me and then that literally set me on my path. An ally. Yep. That's crazy. Before, like, were you in college, were you like interested in fashion then? Like, were you... No. 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 And like, that's, that's a very the, emphatic no. I know. Were you? I was always See, I yeah, was obsessed not. with fashion. I think that's the thing is that like looking back on my life, like I'll have to show you some old photos of me before. I was so not a fashion person whatsoever. I think it was something where I definitely read fashion magazines. Like I, you know, I loved Vogue and Glamour and Elle and Marie Claire and all those. I don't think I, I ever considered it as a path for my actual career though. And it was definitely not, I was not the girl sewing dresses or anything like that. It was more that I loved the writing aspect of it. But weirdly, when I got the internship at Glamour, because I think I've always just been this like fly by the seat of my pants person of like, what do I want to do with my life? I did for some reason, because I think I thought, oh, it's so glamorous. I'm going to move to New York. And I said, as I was on the plane, I want to be a fashion editor. Wow. Even though I had no idea what that meant and I wasn't particularly into fashion. So in my internship, the way that it was structured was you work two weeks in every department. So my first department that I worked in was the fashion department. Those first two weeks that I worked in the fashion department, I ended saying, I do not want to be a fashion editor. <laughs> because a lot of, I mean, internships, they're not easy. No, definitely not. And obviously I was not doing the types of duties at that point as a fashion intern, as like a fashion editor would do. But I think it was more that... As a kid, you don't even know what those jobs are. We see on TV or we see on movies what we think it is. But then when you actually see what is a market editor, I had no clue what that is. I think that then I missed the aspect of being a journalist too. So I think now and what I get to do is that like I get to work in fashion, I get to work in beauty, but I'm all still, still doing like the core editorial work too. Yeah, because looking back at every professional step that you took, after that first internship at Glamour, I mean, you've worked everywhere. I've done a gazillion bizarre things. Like there's so many, how many lives have you lived? Like oh you've my gosh. worked for like celebrity magazines. You worked for Men's Health. Yep. Like you worked for Parent yeah. Magazine. I know. Well, I think I always describe myself as a real generalist. Um, right. And I think especially in the early part of my career, 
it was sort of a conscious effort of where, because I didn't know what I wanted to do, I wanted to spread myself across a lot of different things. So I've talked about this before that I used to work in extreme sports. Like I used to, I actually went to Whistler. It was like one of my trips that I took like very early in my career to um, report on the world snowboarding championships. Right. So I did that. I used to write about cars. I didn't know that you wrote about cars. I wrote about cars. And actually at another point, um, not my first job at Glamour, my second time at Glamour, it wasn't a title, but I was one of my beats was I was the car, cars editor. So when you're an automotive editor, it's actually pretty awesome. Like people think about like your life of like flying around the world and like, you know, going to fashion shows and stuff. As a car editor, you're going on trips with Ferrari to Italy. You're going on a private jet. I never thought of it like that. It's amazing. It's amazing. Wow. So many things that you've done. Out of all those, because like I'm looking here, out of all those places that you had these jobs at, where do you think you learned, you know, your greatest lesson? Hmm. Like, were there any like unexpected gems that you found when you were like working at a certain place where you're like, huh, I didn't know that it was going to turn out like this. Yeah. Weirdly, I think that it was actually one of my very early jobs. I think you mentioned parenting in there. So, and this was when you were twenty-one. This is when I was twenty-one. Yep, you didn't have children. Then. No children. No thoughts of children at the time. So I was twenty-one, finishing up my internship at Glamour, thinking, "What do I want to do next?" So I remember at the time I started interviewing, and I interviewed to be an assistant at Vogue. I did not get that, and I remember feeling devastated because I was like. Oh, I'm within Condé Nast already. It's the job I really want. What am I going to do now? And I remember hearing that there was this assistant job open at parenting, which again, I'm 21 years old, have no thought about kids. I didn't even like the idea of kids at that point. I was like, what do I know about working at parenting? And parenting at the time had been this kind of, I guess, next step for a lot of glamour editors. So a lot of the former glamour editors had gone over there and they were amazing, like super highly skilled people. So I got this job as an editorial assistant, assisting five editors there. It was such a great learning experience for me because it also twisted my mind in this different direction of thinking, I want to be on this path of working at Vogue. What am I doing at parenting? But what it did was I was not the person fetching coffee. I wasn't making copies. I wasn't doing sort of like editorial grunt work. I was doing real stuff. Like I was writing stories. I was editing the entire children's health section. I learned so much from these people and it kind of opened my eyes to being like, don't box yourself in. Like you can actually, especially as a young person, learn so much from anything that we all think about. We have to go into the quote unquote perfect job when it actually doesn't exist. No, I think it's like all of these discordant decisions that you make. I feel they all lead to you manifesting more or less the job of your dreams. Yep. And weirdly, I think when you're in it, especially when you're first starting out, it's hard to see that path. And I think that I have the benefit now of being able to look back on my career and to see all of those little decisions that I made, even though they seemed very bizarre at the time, all worked out in a certain way. But I definitely think that in the moment, I had no idea what I was doing. It's not like I had some specific path that was like, if I take this parenting job, it's going to lead to this, it's going to lead to this. I think that looking back on my career, I felt like a lot of them were detours along the way. And not to say that I knew at that point, I didn't have like a 15, 20 year plan. I never at that point said, I want to be an editor in chief one day. Right. 
how we met, I met you when you were at Nylon. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like, I remember. I remember with your coats. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. And then I remember your office there. My little coat closet. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was, this is definitely a step up. <laughs> <laughs> and you were editor-in-chief and CMO. Yep. And I mean, like, that is a strange, like, thing, right? It's strange. I mean, it I'm was pretty never sure, like that before. I'm pretty sure that title, that joint title has never existed anywhere before and probably will never exist anywhere. Right. In the world of editorial, I think that the traditional way of looking at business and editorial has always been, they talk about the separation of church and state, right? That it's like if you're an editor and a creative person, you should not necessarily have responsibilities to the business side. So there is absolutely value to that. I think that before Nylon, though, I had actually started um, my own branded content company with a couple of partners. So I'd had this taste of the business world that I really liked. And so at the time that I was at Nylon, I was hired as the editor-in-chief. But at some point, I had a great CEO, and he said to me during a meeting, what can we do to make sure that you grow here? Like, what, what do you want to do next? And I said to him, you know, the thing that I still feel very self-conscious about is my knowledge of business. And I think we all, like, depending on how far you go up in your career, even if you are a creative person and you think, I just want to be a creative person, you always are going to touch the world of business in anything that you do. So I felt like now that I was an editor-in-chief, I started having all of these, like, sales meetings and other business meetings, and people would be talking about things that I would be nodding my head, but being like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. So it was a little bit of this, like, fake it or make it thing. And so I was really honest with them. I just said, I still feel really self-conscious about not knowing certain things about business, about marketing, da, da da So he was like, okay, well, how can I help you? So we kind of created this plan that he was like, I'm going to include you in all these other business meetings. You're going to come with me to this, to this, da da whatever. And so over time, he eventually elevated me to head of brand strategy. And then I did such a great job of kind of like building the business side. We built a brand studio for Nylon that brought in a lot of business that then he ended up making me CMO also. So it was this like very weird joint role, but I'm a big believer that people can do both. That it's like, you can still maintain your editorial integrity because you know the editorial that you're working on without having it necessarily touch the business side. Yeah, I think um, it almost makes perfect sense, you know, because like a magazine is a business. Yep. And we're living in an age where a lot of people say print is dead. I mean, it's a very stark statement, but hearing your story of how you you kind of saw, well, we do need to have these two things touching. We do need to have a conversation, like a dialogue. It makes total sense. I think in today's economic reality for all of our businesses, for creative people to not understand what's going on on the business side and to not feel somewhat responsible for it too, is kind of reckless. Like I actually think that I see now more than ever that if there's a cool thing that we want to accomplish in editorial, I want money for it. Like I want to be able to partner with someone amazing and have somebody help us execute on that. So I think that nowadays I feel like the role of an editor-in-chief is so different from what it was like 20 years ago when I was first starting out that now we really do have to think about the business side of things. Like if we were a complete, if Allure was a completely independent company and I was like in charge of it, could I ever imagine not caring about the business side? Like, it just wouldn't happen. It just doesn't make sense, yep. like, at all. So with Nylon, was that your last stop before Allure? It was, yep. All right, so in 2015, November 2015, that was when you became the editor-in-chief of Allure magazine. Yep. So how did that whole thing happen? Um, so I had gotten a 
an email, actually just a cold email from one of the executives who's actually not here anymore at Condé Nast, not with any subject or anything, just being like, I've heard great things about you. Do you want to have breakfast sometime? So I had breakfast with her, again, not knowing at all what this was about. And even after the breakfast, I still didn't know what it was about. It was sort of like, it was like a very broad sort of like investigational thing of like, what are you interested in doing? You know, she she actually at some point took out of her bag, she had this whole dossier written on me. Interesting. And wild. Yeah. Um, and Nylon is an amazing brand, but it's definitely like a smaller independent brand. I think for me then talking to Condé Nast, where I'd worked already, I think by that point, I'd worked at Condé three times before because I was at Glamour twice and then I was at Mademoiselle. Mm-hmm. To me, it was like very exciting just to even have these conversations, but it also, it was not in my mind, anything specific. So it took that next meeting I met with Anna where then I think that things became a little bit clearer what I was talking to them about. It took, I, would, I want to say, about six months, though, six for months. me to actually get hired. So during that time, it was just sort of like, awesome. This is something I'm really excited about. They had asked me to put together a presentation of how I saw the brand evolving, which I spent a lot of time on, did like a lot of great work on it. I actually pulled it out recently. And it's really interesting to look back on now, like, you know, three or four years later, just to see like, what were my ideas back then? And honestly, I feel like we've executed on almost everything that I said. But yeah, it was like this sort of moment of being like, Going from nylon to allure, I think a lot of people said, like, how did you feel like when you got that opportunity? It was such a dream, like to come to a brand like Allure, where I've loved it for so many years. But plus, I think that for me, I think one of the big things is having that feeling of, can I do something there? Like, can I actually make a change? And I felt so strongly about that. So yeah, it was it was exciting. Clearly, we can see from the short track record that you've had here diversity and inclusion has been at the forefront of so many of the initiatives, you know, on the covers, on the stories, on products and whatnot. But what was that original presentation like, you know, if you can go into that? So diversity was definitely a big part of it. I think that um, looking back on my life, like I said, like growing up and feeling like I wasn't seeing faces who looked like me, I think it had such a huge impact on me as a person, but also me as an editor, that I definitely saw that it was something that was missing from the world of not only media, but totally missing from the worlds of fashion and beauty too. And nowadays, we've seen this huge, amazing surge of it in all of fashion and beauty. Four years ago, it was not that way, which is insane to think about, that it's only really been the past maybe two years that a lot of this has happened in like a very widespread way. But so four years ago, This was seen as something that was pretty groundbreaking, which, again, that blows my mind. Um, The other big thing, too, was four years ago, Allure was really just a magazine. A lot of people didn't necessarily think of it as digital. They didn't think of it as social media. They didn't think of it as video. We also had a lot of other business opportunities, too, with events, with the Allure Beauty Box. There was so much that I felt like we could do with this brand that then it kind of became this thing of it's not just what are you going to do with the magazine? It's how are you going to grow this as like a giant global brand? So I think that it was sort of modernizing the way that we think about beauty. I remember my first year always thinking about like what was the look of Allure? And I think that back in the day, it was amazing. Like, don't get me wrong. I think Allure always has been a super strong brand. But it kind of developed this aesthetic that I always refer to as the uptown lady. Like it was sort of like the perfectly coiffed, like no pores on her skin, tall, skinny white lady. And I was like, that's just not the way that people want to look anymore. 
So I think diversity was definitely part of that, was shaking it up with cover stars, also models. And diversity, not just in terms of, of race and ethnicity, but really body shape, having things look more real, just not so perfect anymore. Yeah, I think, you know, definitely from the fashion side of things, we are living in a moment of so-called diversity and inclusion. And I was just sitting down with Tommy Tan, the street style photographer, and we were kind of, you know, both lamenting about how these two words have been co-opted, you know, so much now by by media, by like all sorts of, you know, by fashion, by like food. As excited as I am that we're having this conversation, I also feel like some of these brands are using these terms irresponsibly and they don't really know what it means. Like there is a difference between diversity and inclusion. A hundred percent. Absolutely. No, it's definitely become a like buzzy terms. I think that for the most part, people are pretty savvy to that though. And especially like if you just look at social media or you look at ad campaigns, people can sniff out authentic feelings pretty easily. I think the dangerous part of it is sometimes people see diversity and inclusion as very black or white. We all know there's so much nuance in between that, that even within, let's say, the Asian American community, the fact that there's colorism within our community, right? Like these are things that unless you are in these communities, you might not know that. And so even if it's, let's say, casting models, we did a cover last year for our hair issue that had three Asian models on it. I love that cover, by the way. I love that cover so much too. But I actually also see like the criticism that we got from some people was, where are South Asian girls, right? I totally get that. And I think that we have to be somewhat careful that you can't please everybody in like one cover, obviously. But it certainly was a valid argument that it's sort of like, we can do all these things. It's sort of like... um, with, with black models also, right? I think a lot of the complaint of like celebrities and everything else is that there's a lot of representation of light skin, whereas what about dark skin? So I think these are the conversations that unless we're constantly pushing it forward, you do have that contingent of advertisers or brands and other people. If they're looking at diversity as just a box that they're checking off, they're certainly not thinking about those things. And for you, what is the difference between diversity and inclusion? Oh, I wish I could remember. I saw something great that was not my words, obviously, of like somebody defining those things. And it was such a perfect thing. I think I saved it on my Instagram, but I don't remember it exactly. To me, diversity is having a diverse range of voices, faces, everything else. Inclusion is letting those people have a seat at the table. Like I think inclusion to me is something that's so much more important A lot of these words, though, honestly, don't mean anything anymore. That like thinking about representation also, like I think they become almost weirdly meaningless to the point of where my hope actually for all of this is that eventually we're going to get to a point of where it literally doesn't matter. Like you just have such a diverse range of people and faces and everything and voices that we don't ever talk about it again. We're far away from getting to that point, but I feel like that's the eventual goal. Yeah, I was having dinner with a bunch of Asians in the industry. I learned a new term from them. They say that, I think they called us Slasians, like Asians. That, have you heard of that? Yeah. Like, I haven't heard of that. Yeah. It was like a Slasian dinner. One of the designers, Prabal, he was telling me, he was like, fashion doesn't have a diversity problem. It has an inclusion problem because the individual's with the power in these, say, in an industry like fashion, most is still predominantly white. Yeah. And that's why as much as 
we're trying out here, you know, people of color trying to make differences until we have a person of color at the highest echelons of power, no change is ever really going to be real. I know. I. It's funny because I've made it sort of one of my missions also, and I don't know really how we're going to accomplish this, but I have the same feeling about boards of major companies too. And I voice this at, have you ever heard of Goldhouse? No. What's so that? Goldhouse is, it's only about like a year and a half old, but it's a new organization and they were responsible for Gold Open for Crazy Rich Asians and for some of the other movies and stuff where they sold out theaters and stuff. And so we, I'd been to a couple of dinners with them and I remember saying, one of my missions is I want to make sure that there are more women, but also more Asians on boards of these major companies. And I know that there are like major corporations now that are really trying hard to have more diverse boards and stuff. It's just not happening super quickly. I also think that when it comes to the upper echelons of like CEOs and like the C-suite of things, it's still hard because for the most part, there is that weird misconception that Asians and Asian Americans don't make good leaders right? That it's like, there's the kind of stereotype that we're all very meek and we're not good at like leading people and stuff. So I think that that misperception needs to be altered really quickly in order for us to like move up into those upper echelons. How do you think we're going to change that? It partly takes time, but I think it also is, we all need to do a good job of helping to amplify those voices who we think can get there. So for example, if in mass culture and everything else, you know, if you think about like for the longest time within media and entertainment, the image of Asian people was either you're Bruce Lee and you're a martial artist or you're like the nerd, right? We all know that there is such a massive range. Like there's a massive range of Asians in the same way that there's a massive range of any other race and ethnicity, right? So I think that now because there are more Asians in like just mass culture, that's starting to shift. But I think that as we have people, you know, as you're doing this podcast and everything else, for people to be able to hear different voices and hear different stories and like just see Asian Americans in a different way, I think that's all very valuable. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I tell a lot of my guests that, you know, one of the main reasons I felt so passionate about dedicating this to Asian excellence is that, you know, we can't wait for other people to tell our stories. Only we can tell them, honestly. No, I totally agree with that. I think that um, it's been awesome to see like some of the projects that are coming out in this podcast, like just to see like how, I, I, I said this before we started recording, I never talked about these things with people too. Like, it's not like we had these conversations within my family. I didn't talk with friends about these things. The fact that now in this past year and a half that I've even been having these conversations and like, I've had so many like group chats and like dinner (laughs) invites and stuff like that of just Asian Americans being like, let's just get together. We need to invite you to the next Asian dinner. Yeah. It's also a very cathartic moment, right? Mm -hmm. For all of us now to experience all of this like, happening in this moment, not just like, okay, well, maybe 10 years from now, we're going to see something happening. And I think you're really, you're really at the forefront of that. And, you you know, reading about all the things that you've done, your history and what you're doing at Allure, it's, it's so inspiring. Thank you. I think it's been, it's been really eye-opening to me to being at this brand, which is so huge. And like, it's so well-recognized around the country that, you know, being at Nylon, I think, is a completely different animal where we could do a story, we could do a cover or something. It wouldn't really have this mass impact, though. Like being at Allure, I think I've realized who we put on a cover 
has major, major impact. We had, um, like I was mentioning that hair cover before with the three Asian models, I wrote my editor's letter about it that I wanted to have a quote unquote Asian cover. I didn't know how meaningful it was going to be for the brand until I actually started researching it. That then looking back, I looked at the whole 25 year history of Allure, which had only had two Asian women on the model and the, on the cover in that entire time span. So that was like over 300 covers, two Asian women. And then suddenly by having three Asian women on the cover, we had more Asian representation than in the entire history of Allure. So I think that, um, it, it didn't necessarily have to come from an Asian editor-in-chief. I think someone else could have done that. But I think that it being me, I understood the significance of it much more than somebody else might have. Yeah, you mentioned that with Allure, in contrast to Nylon, is that it's mass, mm-hmm. right? And I was thinking to myself, every woman, she's interested in beauty. Yep. You know, whether she has enough money or whether she has a little bit, how we present ourselves to the world is such a profound part of being a woman. And when I was looking back at all the previous covers before you stepped in, literally, I was taking a tally of how many, any kind of person of color, whether it be Latina or Asian, we now, I mean, we know there were only two two Asians, anyone of color on there it was like a very visceral reaction because I was like, oh, wow, like this year, all white, this year, all white, all white, all white. Okay, there's one person. And then that, you know, certain celebrities would be reused again. It's like, there aren't just two Latina actresses in all of Hollywood. And then I kind of started thinking very existentially, I mean, how is it for women of color to grow up not seeing their likeness anywhere? being told you can be beautiful by doing these things to yourself, but these are prescriptions for white women, yep. right? So I I didn't have anyone to look up to when I was growing up. And I did, I, I read a lot of fashion magazines because my mom went to fashion school. I'm like, well, there's Naomi Campbell, but I'm not black, right. you know? And there were some ethnically ambiguous models, but they were never huge, right? Yep. And I often think to myself, you know, like, why do I find certain things beautiful? Like, why do I not like certain things about my own self? And it really is, you know, because we were all raised in a generation and a time where our likeness was not represented and there must be major repercussions. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that had a huge impact on my life that I specifically remember in middle school and high school, I hated my eyes because I have monolid eyes. So anytime I would read a magazine and like they would teach you how to do eyeshadow, let's say, the way that we do eyeshadow, if they say, put this color in your crease, I don't have a crease, right? And so I remember at some point at a certain age, looking at myself, looking at other people, and I looked so different from them that I remember I took scotch tape on my eyes to try and change the shape of them. Not like eyelid tape, but like to actually make my eyes rounder. Like I remember at night, I was like, I would tape them because I was, I thought it would maybe be like braces that if I just kept my eyes like that, they would become rounder. And I think about that now and I'm like, how bizarre, but like the way that my image of beauty was shaped at that young age, it didn't include me. So I think that now as an editor, I really see it as, you know, I have the ability in Literally every decision that I make, whether it's choosing a cover star, choosing a model for a shoot inside, choosing an image for social media, for digital, for anything, 
we have this opportunity in every single decision that we make to make people feel a certain way. And we are, because we are a mass brand, helping to establish what what beauty actually is, too. And I remember after the election specifically, a lot of people said to us, stick to beauty. Like, don't get political. You guys are like going a little too crazy now, talking about identity and like all these other things. And I actually think that beauty, like you said, is something that everyone has a story about. Everyone like plays in the world of beauty, whether they think they do or not. It's not all just about hair and makeup and skincare. Like beauty is all about our external appearance. So it has everything to do with gender, with weight, with body image, with race, with ethnicity, with hair color, with age, everything else. And those are such interesting, deep stories to tell that go beyond just like these amazing products that we all love too. Yeah, I think that's why your work at Allure so far has been so different and engaging because you could have easily come in and been like, okay, well, I'm just going to give you like a continuation of top 20 lists and put a celebrity on the cover and like call it a day. But you've really intellectualized the brand. And I think before, just the beauty industry in general just wasn't giving enough credit to women. You know, it's like, oh, you just want to look younger. You just want to look dewier. You just want to... And being able to read these stories, interlacing heavy, sometimes heavy topics, Mm -hmm. right? With beauty, it for me, it's been um, really informative and... And interesting. And it's it's kind of like, well, it's about time we yeah. have this conversation, right? Yeah. I think 2017 to me was a really interesting year. And that was the year where a lot of things shifted for us, where my first full year there was 2016. I think we were still getting up to speed on a lot of things. 2017 was where it really kicked into high gear. And so one of the first covers that I remember that we did that was really impactful was we had three women of color, three models on the cover. And instead of just doing like the normal like cover story that we would have interviewed the models, right? I said to the team, I want to get as many women of color that we can to tell us their personal like raw, super emotional stories about racism. And so we went there. It was a like sometimes a super ugly story. People were telling like, you know, they're really horrible stories about racism. But for the most part, it was like in the end, an uplifting story because they were like, we can see how this can all change. So we had in the end, I think 41 women of color talking about racism and colorism and diversity and everything else. It had such a huge impact of where it was not only like a gorgeous looking cover. I had people for the next month emailing me, messaging me, DMing me, being like, I never thought in my lifetime that I would see something like this. Thank you so much. So I think once we had that that feeling and like this emotion of being like, wow, oh my gosh, we're actually like doing this thing where we're not just presenting a beautiful cover with three models on the cover, but like we are doing something that can help shift culture. It made such a huge impact. And then later that year, um, July is typically our America issue. So we had Halima Adden on the cover that said, this is American beauty now. And she was in her hijab. And this was right at the time where the um, the Trump Muslim travel ban was happening. And so I love the idea that it was a beautiful beauty cover, but it had this deeper meaning to it as well. So I think that for me, it's like that's always been my mission has been we can talk about beauty and we can talk about look at her lipstick color. I love it so much. But there is this deeper meaning to everything that we do. I mean, that's what like women are, right? Like people in general, we're not just like one thing. 
to peg someone as just being, you know, like a beauty ed- editor. Oh, but you don't, you know, you don't know anything that's going on in the news or you're a fashion person. Oh, but you know, you don't understand this or that. It's um, so short-sighted. It's short-sighted. And it's also, there is a little bit of like a misogynist tinge to it too, that I think anybody who works in like, quote unquote, women's media or women's publishing is thought to not have that depth to it as well, which I think is a a real shame, honestly, because I think there are so many amazing journalists who are working in this field. And I always say this about beauty, beauty writers and beauty editors too. We work in this world of science and ingredients that it kills me sometimes that people are like, oh, you guys just like try on lipstick and stuff. And believe me, that's a huge part of our job. And I love that part of it. But you also have to be so trained in culture in science and so many other things. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's just giving credit where it's really due. Yep. So when you stepped into Allure, I think I read somewhere or heard somewhere that you wanted to change the world through beauty. <laughs> yes. So I... I love big statements. Yes. It so was tell a big me about statement. It. And it was something that I didn't even think about. It was my first year here and I had to meet the entire sales team. And so the way that they formatted it was really fun. And our head of sales at the time, she had all these like little note cards. And so she was doing like a Q&A with me so people could learn who I was in the sales team. And so one of her questions that she asked me was, because I was a new editor there, she was like, what do you want to do with this brand? I had not pre-planned any of my answers or anything. And I said, I want to change the world. And I think back on that now, and I really didn't have like the full plans of what I wanted to do, but to be able to start with that statement and to say, beauty can actually change the world, it sounds sort of like a ridiculous statement, I think, to some people, but I really do believe that changing our perception of how we feel about ourselves, but also how we feel about other people is super meaningful. Like if you think about everything that's going on in this country right now, about like all like the racism, everything else, it's like... If we just understood people, like we're all human, we're all sort of the same, it doesn't really matter that we look different. It is so the core of so many issues right now. And I, you know, honestly, I think, I think you're doing it. I mean, and and again, like such a short history, the stories that I'm reading, the covers that I'm seeing, like every time I'm just like, yes. Thank you. Yes. You're giving a voice um, to those people who were never given the opportunity and, you know, whether or not there's an Asian model or person on the cover, there's just seeing someone that is traditionally categorized as otherness yep. and seeing that otherness, which I identify with on the cover of a magazine, for me, that's like, wow, like yeah. this is, something's really happening here. Well, I think going back to what we were talking about too with diversity and inclusion, it's been really important to us to think about who's behind the scenes too. So we, a couple of years ago, did a shoot. It was a monolid beauty shoot. And so one of our editors, Sable, who's Asian, um, was sort of running the show on that. We had a whole, an entirely all Asian crew working on it. Photographer, makeup artist, hair, everybody behind the scenes. And I truly do think that the finished product was better because everybody sort of understood what they were doing. So we not only cast like all Asian monolith models, but it's like the fact that everybody was kind of working toward this goal to make it better was really super impactful. And actually the photographer and his sister were so inspired by that shoot that they ended up starting Burdock Magazine. Have you heard of this? No. So it's actually all about Asian Americans. Oh, great. So they literally, I ran into them at this year's Apex Apex. Gala. And then they were like, and he was like, do you know, I was so inspired by that monolith shoot that we did together. We started Burdock Magazine because of that. So I'm like, it was so 
like just mind blowing to me that like this one shoot that we did then impacted him to create this whole other project. And I think it's been really cool to me to see that these things that we, we obviously thought about that a lot and everything, but just this one moment in time could then spark this snowball effect for something else. Right. So for for maybe the the people who are wondering, what is a monolid? A monolid. <laughs> I know. It's really funny because I think I always anticipate that other Asians know what it is. Right. But I talked about it a lot on my Instagram. And at some point, my brother-in-law, who is also Asian, was like, what is this thing you keep talking about, monolid? Oh, interesting. So monolid eyes like mine mean that you don't have the fold. So for a lot of people, you know, if you have the sort of like upper eyelid fold in your eyelid, I don't have that. So my eyelids actually kind of fold under. So talk about like beauty difficulties. It's been really difficult for me to learn how to put on eyeliner, to put on eyeshadow, other things. So it's been typically something that until recently, and especially with YouTube and other things, obviously you'll find a lot of monolith tutorials now. It was never something that people talked about. If there was a how-to in a magazine or how-to in like a makeup book or something, it was not like they had some separate caption that said, here's how to do it if you have monolid eyes. So it was something really important to me that as the beauty authority within this space, we needed to make sure that we were servicing those people too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned that the whole tape thing, I I did something similar when like my eyes have changed as I've gotten older. But when I was younger, I always had like a lid, but it was always a little skinnier. And I remember the first time I went to Hong Kong, I like saw those those tapes that are like crescent shaped and you put them in your eye. And I was like, oh, my God, these are genius. (laughs) But again, you know, it's like when you grow up as first gen, like in a place where more or less people are predominantly white, you don't find these like these products and, and whatnot. So it's great that you guys are, you know, doing these stories in the magazine. Yeah. But I think it's also like, obviously, that's something that I personally identify with and I I care about that. But I think that because I know there's something so specific like that for me, it's also opened up my mind to understand that everybody has something like that, whether it's your hair texture, whether it's your skin color, whether it's your skin texture, anything else, we all individually have our own things. And so much of it historically has been underserved by mass media, by everything else. Obviously, like I said, with YouTube, with social media, everything else, you can typically find somebody talking about, you know, some specific thing. But for the most part within like mainstream media, it's still, if you look out there, it's really still pretty underserved. It's a very, very narrow lane. How do you make sure that as many of these stories, you know, of like how to's are being told of how, you know, women of different color do their hair or how they put makeup on, your team then must reflect that kind of diversity. Yep. So I think part of it starts with who you hire. Our team now compared to when I first started is so much more diverse. When you have a diverse team, it's so much easier to then do diverse content as well because it's something that just naturally happens. At the same time, I definitely, especially my first year, was a broken record about we need more of this, we need more of that, da, da, da. Now I think everyone is really trained well. And I don't even need to say it to anyone anymore because like they're the ones now who are kind of driving, we need more of this, we need somebody with curly hair, we need, you know, dark skin, you know, everything else. I think part of it is just us constantly reminding each other too that, for example, when we curate products for the Allure Beauty Box, every single product that we do Color cosmetics is hard because as we know, the shade ranges of like, 
you know, even a lipstick, let's say. Lipstick doesn't always look good on every single skin tone. We make sure that whatever we put in there looks good on everybody. Like it has to be universal. And we've said no to certain things if it's not universal. So if it's a highlighter, if it's a lipstick that's too light for some people, we'll go back and say like, can we work on the shade a little bit more? Because it is something that it's not just having a diverse range of people in images. It's also making sure that every single decision that we make is also representative of that. Right. What is the Allure box? Yeah, it's actually behind you back there. So it's a monthly box. So this is the Allure Beauty Box. So you subscribe to it basically. And so mm. monthly, you get like all these products in here. You get a little mini magazine. And then you get your nice luxury samples. Oh. Yeah. So it's the only one that's like editorial curated. We literally, the editors, pick all these things. Right. This one is actually an upcoming one. So these are all best of beauty winners. So right. It's really good. But this, like talking about how the business has evolved too, this has become a massive business for us. Was the Allure box always around? So it was around, but before I started, it was actually, it was a license through a company called Quidsy, okay. which I think is like an Amazon company. So right before I started, we took it over as a brand. So we run it in-house now. Right. And before it was like, it was an okay business. It was sort of one of those things though, where I think the company was like, is this going to stick around? Mm-hmm. And now it's a massive success story for the company. I think it just goes back to, you know, that that part of the conversation when we talked about you being a CMO and a chief, like an editor-in-chief, is that everything, there's so much overlap all over the place. And the fact that you had the foresight and ingenuity to be like, well, actually, we need to bring this back in. It's like, so you. Well, I think like to me, I love, I will always love the editorial part of my job. I love creating stories and, and covers and everything else now working on videos and social and everything like it's exciting I am really excited about the business opportunities though too like I think that as we all kind of grow in our our own fields and everything it's exciting to think about all the different things that we can do I don't think of Allure as a media brand anymore I really think of it as just a brand brand and in a weird way, I think that's what probably every media brand needs to think about right I now. I agree. Right? Like you can't just exist as, you certainly can't just be a magazine anymore. But I also don't think that you can just be a magazine and a website. You really have to think about who do you as a brand specifically want to be and what are the other things that your reader and your audience all want from you? Okay, so my last question. You are expecting... I am. Your third yes. child As I sit now. here kind of like out of breath, like... <laughs> you look great. Thank you. You said she's baby girl. Baby girl, yep. So baby girl number two. Yep. Baby girl number two, but child number three. Child number three. Being a mother to two daughters. How old is your daughter now? So my daughter is 11 and my oldest, my son is 14. Your son's 14. Yep. So having, you know, a daughter and one in the oven right now... And kind of living in the environment, you know, that we are in as women. Are you contemplative now about your job more, you know, about the responsibility that you have with this bringing new life in and already having an 11-year-old daughter, you know, how your daughter is going to form identity, you know, what metrics of beauty she's going to follow? Do you think about that? A hundred percent. I think about that actually with both of the kids too, because I think a lot of times we think as women, we're kind of more concerned about the way that our girls are going to react to things. I'm kind of 
equally as concerned about my boy too, because I think that boys shape what they think about masculinity and femininity at a pretty early age. So I think with both of them, I'm very careful about the way that I phrase things. And my husband's great too, because he's also very careful in my parents' generation. I don't, I don't know if in your, like your aunts and uncles and your parents and stuff were kind of the same way, but within Asian families, there was always a lot of like body image stuff. Like my dad, when I was younger, he'd kind of like grab someone's arm, like one of my cousins or something and be like, oh, you're getting kind of chunky, right? And that was just like the thing generationally that people did. Nowadays, it's like, we're just very sensitive to those types of things and like would never obviously do that to our kids. But I think that, um, in the age of social media too, it's been really interesting to see because both of our kids are on Instagram more so than YouTube. Like they're not watching a lot of YouTube videos, but they're constantly, they get all of like their information, everything from either Instagram or TikTok and other things. So they already are seeing these images of like, you know, like they're super preteen and teen influencers and they're all like, you know, completely done up with like full makeup. They're all contouring and everything. And I think it's, it is definitely hard for me to explain to Gabby, my daughter, like that stuff's not real. Like it's not about who you are. She's got a good head on her shoulders though, where I think that she and her friends are very into makeup and trying things. She asked me the other day if she could try contouring, but then I had to explain to her, I was like, you know, you don't need contouring. She's like, no, no, no. I just think it's fun. And I, I am all for that because I think that beauty in general, I think of it as fun too. And I think of it as a source of creativity that if you view it as something where you're using it as a tool for expression and for creativity, it can be such a positive thing. It's where people lean on it as a crutch and they start to view it as this is something that I have to do because society tells me that I'm going to be ugly if I don't do it. That's where it's really detrimental. So I think that because I have that view, it's been really important for me to instill that in her too. And I think that with the upcoming baby, I'm sure I'll be the same way also. It is interesting though, because working in beauty, right? You have to have this sort of like different perspective on it. I think that at 11, like I said, she's got a really good head on her shoulders about things where she likes makeup, but she also, she's starting middle school this year. I was like, do you think you're going to wear makeup in middle school? She's like, no. You know, and I'm like, I like the idea that she enjoys it and she likes playing with it, but she also doesn't feel like she feels the pressure to have to do anything. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's, I don't even know what it would be like to be an 11 year old right now. It's crazy. Do you know, like, <laughs> do you know what a visco girl is? Like visco isn't like visco count? Yeah, but there's like a look now that it's like, it's all the rage among like that, that age group. Wait, no, so tell it's, me. It's called a visco girl. And uh -huh. like visco girls, I guess, are, they all wear scrunchies and they kind of have like, if you think about like 70s surfer girl style, like it's all like sort of striped t-shirts, they wear vans, like it's a whole look. And so on TikTok and everything else, like people are all talking about what visco girls are. And it's really interesting because it's the first year where Gabby... I think is aware of trends and aware of looks and stuff where she's starting middle school. She wanted to go shopping for clothes and stuff. And it's like, it's just very interesting to see somebody forming their ideas about what their visual identity is going to be. Oh, I learned something new every single day. That's so interesting, <laughs> Visco. Okay, I do actually have one more question. Yeah. And this was, uh, I think in 2017, you had Helen Mirren on the cover. Yep. And this was like, big thing that happened at Allure, you as editor-in-chief decided to ban the word anti-aging. And I just want to be like, hallelujah. <laughs> like, 
how did that how did that come about? Yeah, it actually I don't know if you know Phil Picardi. I don't who's now um he's the editor in chief of Out magazine now. So Phil at the time was our digital director. And I think he was the first person to bring it up right before he started working at Allure. He'd kind of done this presentation um, to get the job. So at that point, he was like, why are we still using this term anti-aging? And so I always thought it was a great idea, but we kind of shelved it for a little bit. And at some point, my beauty director, Jenny Bailly, we were in a meeting with a brand and she brought it up also, not having even seen what he had said. And she was like, yeah, you know, we don't really say the term anti-aging because like if you're having a conversation with someone and you're talking about skincare, you would never say to them, oh, what kind of anti-aging products do you use? We're more specific about it. You would say, you know, if you had a, like a wrinkle under your eye, you might say, oh, what eye cream do you think I could use to like help with this? Or I have hyperpigmentation. What serum do you think I could use? People are so savvy now that we actually talk about specific ingredients. We talk about specific symptoms or, or other things. So as we started to talk about it internally, we're like, yeah, like anti-aging is just a term that we all default to using because everyone has used it. It's on packaging. It was even a vertical on our website that was called anti-aging. But then as we started to dig into what does that term actually mean, it became so negative to us that when we say like that, you know, anti-anything, we talk about like anti-fungal spray, antivirus, right? It's always things that we want to kill. Whereas aging is actually something that's amazing. Like in, in Eastern cultures, right? I think aging is viewed as something completely different than it is here in Western cultures. Here, it was still, as much as we were talking about diversity of other things, aging and anyone over, frankly, over the age of like 40 within like mass media, mass culture, everything else, you were kind of viewed weirdly as like over the hill. And even those terms, right? Thinking over the hill and like when people send like those funny, silly, like greeting cards and stuff for like someone's 40th birthday, you kind of view this as like this hill that you're rolling down towards like the inevitable like decline. And so as we started to think about like, what are we actually reinforcing with women? And I just thought that it made so much sense for us as a brand, as the beauty authority, that if we banned this term, but also made a call to the industry and said, we want you to join us, that it would be really impactful. I will tell you, though, we were so nervous about it. Like, we had no idea how it was going to be perceived. We work with all these brands who have all these products that are called anti-aging. So it could have totally gone in a different direction where then suddenly they would have been like, what are you guys doing? But we also felt like it was something that we had to do. So we kind of jumped off the cliff, did it. And then luckily for us, it was received so, so well. I mean, you wrote the story, like everyone in, involved in that. It was, I mean, it wasn't done like in a salacious way. It was done in a really intelligent way. And when I was reading more about it and even like thinking about how I consume products, it's wild that it's taken this long for someone to be like, mm, actually, I don't think this is like that cute of a term yep. to use anymore. Yeah. I think about it and equate it a lot to the way that we used to think about dieting, right? Like the word diet is like not so cool anymore. And if you think about women's media's role within that, women's media used to present a lot of cover lines that were like, lose 15 pounds in five days, right? We all now in hindsight look back on that and we're like, that's such a negative thing. Like, what were we doing to people? I think in a lot of ways, anti-aging is sort of that too. That if we're saying that youth is the only image of beauty, what are we doing? And I say women because I do think that it's mostly women. I think that men nowadays, they are somewhat targeted towards those things. But I think that for women, the emphasis on 
being skinny, the emphasis on looking young is so much stronger that if you think about just the impact that has on all of us on a daily basis, it's so negative. I mean, women in their 20s are like getting Botox. Yep. Like, it's just, it's really wild. Yeah. But that really, it had such a global impact. People were writing stories. It went viral. It went viral. It was, I was getting like um, alerts from people writing stories in like France. There was actually a referendum in the UK to ban the term anti-aging in the entire country. I don't think it passed, but they referenced our story in that saying we should ban this from the entire country. (laughs) So yeah, it had a huge impact and it's actually become now an annual initiative for us of how do we redefine what it means to age and like, what does this actually mean? And like, Let's stop thinking of, you know, an actress, let's say, in Hollywood who's over, I don't even want to say 40. I think that for actresses, it's 35, right? Once you're 35, they're like, okay, what grandma role can you start playing? So you walked in to this role at Allure with a big plan of wanting to change the world through beauty. And throughout this conversation, I mean, you're doing it. And you're making like such huge impact. And I just have to say, I really admire what you do. And I just feel so grateful that I actually have someone that looks like me who's in the position that you are in and that you're making the most of it and really doing what so many of us have have wanted to see done so many years ago. Thank you. That honestly, it means so much. I think that... It's hard because I always say this to people that, you know, we're in my office right now. I think that we all work so hard at what we're doing. It's hard sometimes because we don't necessarily always hear from people about like, this is having an impact, like this means a lot to me. So I think when we do hear it, it honestly energizes me so much that I know know that we're doing the right thing. But I think that um, we all just get so bogged down with our day-to-day that it's hard to see sometimes like the overall impact of things. So it makes me happy too to just even reminisce and talk about some of the things that we worked on because I am, I'm truly so proud of it. You should be so proud, Michelle. Thank you so much. Thank you. For having us in your office here. Thank you for being an inspiration. Thank you. And I'm so excited for your podcast. I can't wait to listen to all the episodes. Yes. Make sure you listen, (laughs) rate, and subscribe. (laughs) All right. So that was my conversation with Michelle Lee. Michelle, when you ask anyone in the industry, it's Grace Incarnate. Fashion can be very transactional, especially when you're in my position. In a world that often puffs itself up based on who you are and who you know, Michelle, she's never made me feel less than. Even when I was early in my blogging career and didn't have much to show other than a passion for the work. So thank you, Michelle, for seeing me and making me feel seen. This conversation, I hope, will be a lighthouse to those of us who sometimes feel change in the industry and more broadly, the world cannot happen fast enough. Michelle and Allure is showing us it can. Like Maya Angelou said, when you know better, you do better. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can find Michelle on Instagram at Hey Michelle Lee. That's at Hey Michelle Lee. That's going to be in the show notes. And while you're on the gram, make sure you follow Vanessa Wants to Know, same as the podcast name, and give us a shout. Lastly, don't forget to rate us five out of five and leave a comment because that really helps us get these incredible stories out to the masses. On that note, thank you so much for tuning in this week to Vanessa Wants to Know. 
hosted by me, your most humble host, Vanessa Hong. 